good morning and welcome to the fifth Integrated Pest Management podcast for the 2019 summer season. This is Dave Nikolai. I'm a University of Minnesota Extension Educator in Crops, and I also work as a coordinator for Ag Professional Programming. This morning, we are very pleased to have with us uh, one of my co-workers, Angie Peltier, who actually offices out of the Crookston Regional Office in northwestern Minnesota. And to get the ball rolling, Angie, let's have you uh, talk a little bit about yourself and your background and how you came to be in Crookston, Minnesota. Thanks for having me here today, Dave. I started out, I was born, raised, and educated in Wisconsin. I got a degree, my degrees in biology and then plant pathology, so field crops, plant pathology. And my my major advisor during graduate school was um, the field crops extension plant pathologist. So we worked in corn, soybean, and wheat. And so I got exposed to extension early on. I went into extension down in Illinois in a similar regional position for several years. And when a job opened up in Crookston, I decided to to make the leap up there. We have some friends in in Bemidji, and, and it's pretty neat up in the northern Red River Valley. It's beautiful. There, there's a lot of sky and um, a very diverse um, group of crops that are that are grown up there. So it's every day is a, a new challenge, and so I really appreciate being part of Extension here. And I've I've been here for two years now. So Illinois, obviously known for corn and soybeans. Tell us a little bit about the commodity crops that you're working with currently in the Crookston and the Red River Valley area. Sure. So although there are diverse crops, you know, there's canola, potatoes, sugar beets, tons of small grains and other crops, I'm I'm tasked with working with corn and soybean. Polk County, one of the largest soybean producing counties in the country, just for sheer acreage and production. And um, corn has moved into the, the northern Red River Valley. It's up and into Canada now. So so trying to figure out just how to, to serve folks that are growing what's a relatively new crop in the area as well. Well, obviously, it's a big area, uh, but I understand that you've had some help this year in terms of scouts. And uh, these folks, obviously, in a lot of locations are an extension of what we do in terms of keeping the status uh, up to date, so to speak, for us and for the growers in terms of corn, soybean production and IPM. I believe you did have a scout. You want to talk a little bit about how that worked and what kind of a program that you were involved with in terms of integrated pest management? Sure. So I had a young man. He's from Mound, Minnesota. His name is Oliver Berglund, and he was what was called this year the Next Generation Extension IPM intern. So he was part of this internship program, and he got exposed to multiple things this this season. So He's been involved in several projects, including a small grain survey looking at at diseases and pest issues in primarily wheat, soybean survey, so looking primarily for soybean aphids, but also keeping his eyes peeled for for other newer emerging diseases or or pest issues. So he's involved in in a couple of corn and soybean fungicide trials, helped helped us with planting and, and maintaining those trials. And then um, helping to maintain several of the University of Minnesota soybean breeding plots throughout the northwestern counties in uh, in Minnesota. 
And then this fall, he's going to stay on and help with the European Corn Borer Survey and, and maybe some targeted soybean cyst nematode sample collection. So I'm, I'm very pleased with this young man. He really has helped out a lot, and I'm glad to be able to, to have him through the fall. He sounds like a, an excellent candidate, perhaps, for either a, a position in agriculture, whether it's in an in industry situation or extension, certainly a good opportunity for training. Uh, maybe we should move on and talk a little bit about uh, the commodity crops and the kind of year that we've had. Of course, it's it's been challenging across all of Minnesota, uh, but Minnesota's a big state, and we've had everything from excessive rainfall, prevent planting, in southwestern Minnesota, southern Minnesota, southeastern. But in northwestern Minnesota, it's been a little bit different in terms of your precipitation pattern. You want to briefly talk a little bit about uh, what kind of a growing season it's been for corn and soybean producers in your part of the state. Sure. So parts of, of Polk County and north, we were very dry early on, so we were able to get planted in a timely fashion, whereas we were hearing all those reports from further south, in Minnesota and then throughout the I states, the entire Corn Belt, it seemed to be, was underwater for, for some time. So we, we were dry. We actually ended up on the drought monitor map. Um, you could see that we were abnormally dry there for a while, too. So we really needed rain. And um, we've gotten some rain recently. So crops have started to, to look pretty good. But you know, there was a, a time there, and I know it was the same throughout the entire state, where the crops just seemed to be at a standstill because it was so cold, cloudy, cold. And so uh, once the crops were able to, to get a little bit of heat, we were able to close rows and, and get going. So what is the month of September looking like in terms of uh, maturity of both corn and, and soybeans. I mean, it's, I know it's difficult, obviously, to predict the weather here, but uh, in, in terms of the maturity range of crops that are growing in the, in the area, um, are we going to beat the frost or hope to in, in northwestern Minnesota? Things look good? So I would say Polk County and North, most likely, we'll, we'll be able to finish up the season. I'm not sure how many Additional days we'll have to do some infield drying when it comes to the, the corn. So I think some folks are probably stocking up on, on propane to, to dry the crop. But a little bit south, we ended up not getting planted on time. So parts of, of Norman and Monoman County and south of that, we were very, very wet early on. And so people weren't able to plant on time. So I would imagine that, that frost would you know end the crop throughout some of those those counties. In terms of some of your educational programming emphasis, you want to talk a little bit of first, I suppose, about soybeans. Now, I know you spent some time in, in educational programming on soybean cyst nematode, but sometimes we in extension have to change gears depending upon, you know, the cards that are dealt in terms of the pest information uh, that's out there in, in infestation. But uh, talk to us a little bit about soybeans. Uh, first of all, what where your emphasis has been, and then what things did you experience this last year in terms of soybean production uh, in the area involving integrated pest management? So this year we had a, a couple of issues that we haven't had in, in previous years. So one thing I got to learn a lot about this, this summer was thistle caterpillars. So it's, there's been a pretty high 
population in, in some fields. I know that, that in some fields, action thresholds have been reached. And so what happens, though, with these caterpillars, it's the painted lady butterfly. So very pretty butterfly that looks great until they, she comes into your field and lays eggs. And she'll lay them on the, the soybeans. And then the caterpillars actually produce a kind of a webbing and it wraps the, the leaf around itself. So it creates a little hidey hole to, to feed inside of, away from predators. And so that curled leaf tissue, what happens is it's not contributing as much to yield as non-curled, non-fed upon leaves. But it's, it's very interesting because thistle caterpillars, it seems like the butterflies must lay their eggs in the upper part of the canopy. And so it's very, um, it's, it's really alarming when you see just so many curled leaves and think, wow, there's, there's probably going to be a lot of injury. But then you look a little bit closer and the, the treatment threshold is caterpillars present and then more than 20% injury caused by uh, feeding injury caused by the, the caterpillar. And so we, we haven't seen that in a lot of the fields. If you look closer, you know, the lower canopy, the middle of the canopy, and then the upper canopy, all told, 5% injury in a lot of instances, even though it's very alarming to see these, these leaves curled at the top of the plant. But some of this injury, um, in, in terms of viewing it, defoliation, holes in leaf, or you maybe describe a little bit what you were looking at. So they sit there and they, they feed and, and seemed to me when I was looking at them, they'll feed um, maybe starting at the edge of the leaf, but a lot of times it will be towards the middle. They're just, they're eating leaf tissue away. So taking away that photosynthetic area that we need to, to uh, fill out our, our pods. But um, like I said, it, a lot of people are alarmed coming up to a field right away just because it looks like, wow, so many of my, my plants are infested, which they are. A lot of plants are infested, but if you look closer, some of them are, are no longer feeding. During the reproductive growth stages, like I said, we need 20% feeding injury to consider a, an insecticide application. As the economic threshold. Well, that also leads into soybean aphid. So what was the status of soybean aphid in the area this year? And and were there any fields that developed an economic threshold level? So that was something that, that Oliver, the scout, and another scout further south, they were, they were working on, on going into random soybean fields and looking for soybean aphids. And this year, it was next to impossible to find soybean aphids. So it was very boring for the scouts, but uh, really good news when it came to what farmers were encountering. So we did several soybean plot tours up in the northwestern counties just last week. And when I would ask farmers what they thought about why they weren't seeing soybean aphids in a couple of different locations, different farmers said, because they feel sorry for us. So I thought that was a pretty, pretty funny, but um, still interesting that we just haven't seen soybean aphids this year. Certainly, that's going to be a situation that in some places we're still observing or watching, but we're getting, I think, in a lot of cases uh, later in August here in, in September, so some things might change as, as well, but uh, 
it's getting towards the end, I think, in the, in the season. Any other comments about anything else in soybeans, disease-wise, uh, et cetera, that you want to talk about? The, the one thing that continues to keep me up at night is soybean cyst nematode. I, I continue to worry that folks in the, in the Red River Valley, a lot of people don't seem to be aware that this is something that has moved into the area and, and could, for, for the foreseeable future, I mean, until there's some sort of magic bullet, this is something that's going to, to significantly limit soybean and driving yields in, in the area. Um, you can see up to 30% yield loss before there are above-ground symptoms, and a lot of people seem to be waiting for those above-ground symptoms to come before, before trying to figure out why their, their yields are, are either stagnant or, or slowly declining over time. So this is something that I really would hope that people start to, to really focus on, because I know that in, in some fields, entire sections in Norman County, people aren't able to, to plant soybeans. For the foreseeable future, just because population densities of soybean cyst nematode have gotten so high. Are there any recommendations that you have as far as sampling for a field, timing-wise, doing something yet this summer or this fall? So I would say what happened last fall was people might have considered collecting samples for SCN, but then the, the fall got away from them. They were able to get in and, and harvest their crops. It was very, very wet in the, in the fall. So a lot of people were, you know, when they wanted to be harvesting crops, it, it had snowed. And so that really complicated manners. And so I would say if, if you're concerned about uh, the harvest season getting away from you and not being able to collect samples, any time that you can collect a sample is better than, than not collecting a sample. So we would say um, the more soil cores from the smaller area, the better the estimate will be. These uh, soil samples, all it's going to do is give us an estimate of population densities, but, but that's very important because that will help us to determine just what crops we should be planting next and how well we're managing soybean cyst nematode in our fields. One other important crop that you've indicated that you're working with, Angie, is corn. Do you want to talk some about what were the challenges in 2019 in corn production and, and what are you seeing in terms of disease and insects, etc.? Up in the, the northern Red River Valley, like I said, Polk County and north, we were able to get corn planted in a timely fashion. A little bit south of there, though, Norman, Monoman County and, and south, got uh, corn planted relatively late and they've gotten multiple larger rain events since then. So there's a lot of standing water in, in some of the fields. These fields tend to be uh, tend to have a, a high clay content and there isn't that um, subsurface tiling that a lot of people have further south. So I think that corn yields aren't going to be so great in that area down there. But one of the things that we've noticed as far as disease is concerned is goss's blight. So we don't have the, the humid weather that, that happens a little bit further south when there's a lot of rain. And so we don't get some of the, the gray leaf spot. We don't get uh, northern leaf blight where you need a long periods of leaf wetness for disease to occur. But what we do get is, is goss's blight. So it's always windy in the northern Red River Valley, but on, on July 9th, we had uh, wind gusts higher than 50 miles per hour 
over by, by Crookston. And so a little bit more than a week later, we started to see symptoms showing up on corn leaves. So large water-soaked lesions with wavy borders, little dark green specks inside of those lesions. And then you looked really closely and, and looked at it kind of uh, sideways or, or having the, the um, sun sun's light angling down just right, you could see a, a shiny bacterial ooze as well. So um, symptoms weren't found on, on all corn hybrids in this particular trial. And so um, some had no disease while others had almost 20% incidence. And so that just goes to show how important hybrid selection is when it comes to disease management. Well, one of the things that growers ask about, I know in, in the southern part of the state, is management with gosses. Just real briefly here, it is a bacteria. Mm -hmm. You want to talk real briefly about what are some key management things that growers should keep in mind in terms of dealing with this disease? If those leaves that have been infected and have the lesions don't break down before the next time the, that a corn crop is planted in the field, that's going to provide inoculum for the next corn crop. Should we get, you know, those high high wind events, sand blasting, anything that, that causes a wound on the, the plant, that, that really tends to favor Goss's wilt and Goss's blight. In terms of fungicide, though, I don't believe that that is probably... Uh, a management technique, you're correct? No, you're correct. So residue management, controlling grassy weed species that can also be hosts, that's important. Longer periods between corn crops and, and selecting Goss's blight tolerant hybrids, those are the primary means of control because, you know, as with, with other bacterial diseases, uh, foliar fungicide isn't going to provide any protection. So that's why proper disease identification is just so important because, you know, a, Foliar fungicide isn't going to protect against Goss's wilt. I know Dr. Melvick here on St. Paul campus has done some trials looking at different genetics and hybrids, and that's you know an opportunity too. Of course, when you make your seed selection, is to you know, investigate that. Correct. Correct. Right. So most of our our seed catalogs, Goss's wilt is going to be one of the one of the columns in the in the seed catalog, and we can go through and. Most of the time, they're rated on a one to nine scale, and and look look for those hybrids that have a good to excellent rating. So that that's the best way to set yourself up for success when it comes to Goss's wilt and blight. Well, as we talked about when we started the program, in terms of getting into twenty twenty here from twenty nineteen, what are some things that growers should think about or still yet be able to do in the fields here as we go through the uh, the month of. Uh, well, what's left of August, you know, and into the month of September and to harvest, but in terms of this final stretch to harvest. That um, folks probably have already started to do this, but if you haven't yet, might be a good time to stock up on, on propane because you, you're probably going to have to dry a crop that might not mature before frost, and there won't be a lot of time for that infield drying to take place before the snow flies, especially in, in my neck of the woods. Um, crop scouting is also so important until we get that crop off of, off of the field. This is particularly true when it comes to corn. So um, if your corn crop was, was struggling at all this year, whether it's because of too much or too little rain, Goss's wilt or another leaf disease that reduce photosynthesis, your crop might be at risk for those stalk rotting pathogens. And so going in, pushing stalks, trying to see if, if there's 
if there's breakage, if there's rotted stocks, it's just so important because nobody likes to harvest down corn. I guess to end up, uh, let's talk a little bit about 2020. You know, what do you anticipate in terms of challenges from an integrated pest management or an agronomic standpoint uh, for next year, particularly in the, in the Crookston area and the surrounding counties? Late planting, a lot of rain and, and slow accumulation of those heat units led to poor canopy closure, slow canopy closure in a lot of fields. Additionally, crop prices meant that margins are very, very tight. And so some of the proven practices, such as using those layered residual herbicides to to manage weeds, that was unrealistic for for many farms. And so this means that that weeds might have grown out of control in some fields. And unfortunately, as you know very well, Dave, unfortunately, weed seeds produced this year, they'll go into that weed seed bank and and will cause us problems for years to come. So I'm, I'm very worried about that. There's quite a bit of Now uh, we have some of the pigweeds moving into the area, so we have water hemp, which has proved so challenging in in the southern part of the state. We also have just out of really out of control ragweed. I think we have some herbicide resistant ragweed in our area, so those are going to cause problems for for years to come. I know one of the challenges we have with uh, giant rag and now ragweed, and also with common ragweed in, in the central and northern part of the state is, you know, glyphosate resistance, um, concerns about that. Certainly there is in water hemp as well. So uh, we have to think about diversifying our, our herbicide portfolio. Um, we have concerns on some of the other mode of actions, the, uh, the ones that are the PPO and herbicides. But uh, basically, you've got to know where things are. So it goes back to uh, your scout right. and in terms of that. But farmers scouting on their own, and you know, it's, it's, it's something to drive down the road as you obviously drive a lot mm-hmm. and um, you know it's, it's flat enough and a lot of that areas you can see those weeds at that bean level height and now that we didn't close those rows but getting out there to really scout uh, I think is uh, is is important and uh, some of your co-workers are really on this Dr. Uh, Tom Peters our sugar beet uh, extension specialist I know in, in in the area really talks a lot about the concerns on on these weeds as well and sugar beets and, and other weeds etc. Right, and, and sugar beet production tends to complicate weed management just because there's so many so many herbicides that actually will have a, a very long window of time that needs to pass before you can go in and plant sugar beets. So we have fewer fewer options when it comes to, to herbicides in, in our area if you produce sugar beets. And I know Tom has been very good at helping folks to develop weed management strategies just based on on what's possible when it comes to sugar beet production. Well, we look forward, Angie, to seeing you on the meeting circuit, so to speak, again (laughs) this year, uh, whether it's private pesticide applicator or other commodity crops, soybean, corn, et cetera, uh, programs uh, out and about. And we cooperate with a lot of the folks on out of North Dakota State University on different projects and programs along on the Red River Valley. So Certainly, uh, that's a, a good opportunity to have that one-on-one conversation. So with that, we thank you for your uh, ability to come in, in here today and then visit with us on this podcast version for the Integrated Pest Management Program at the University of Minnesota. Uh, I'd like to uh, thank uh, Dr. Anthony Hansen for the production of this program as we go forward. And uh, wish you a lot of good luck, Angie, in the uh, 2019 of what's left of it and certainly 2020 and we look forward to hearing from you again. 
That sounds great. I wish all the, the producers good luck as, as we move into this harvest season. And I hope that everybody has a very safe and bountiful harvest.